Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join HealthBird community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, an exciting founder, a serial entrepreneur that has done it. Now he's on his third company and uh, very successfully so. We're going to be learning quite a bit on all the lessons learned on the challenges that he faced from building a business in South America versus building a business now in Europe, which is obviously different challenges that uh, that he had you know, in front of him. But again, you know, super inspiring for all of you who are listening, who perhaps, you know, are also in the same journey of building something that is exciting. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Philip Povel. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show today. So originally born in Brazil, uh, obviously, you know, it was uh, between Brazil and Germany where you were raised. But give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life was good, at least at the very beginning, you know, in Brazil, it was also pretty sunny until I moved to, to Germany, I guess. Um, we, I was born in, I was in, born in Brazil in Sao Paulo, um, you know, Brazil's largest city uh, in the early 80s. And then at the beginning of the 90s, basically, my parents decided to move back to Germany, which was naturally a big cultural shock for me and also temperature shock. But it was great. Um, you know, we, I had a, an amazing childhood with, uh, lots of friends and uh, also lots of brothers and sisters. Um, and, you know, I think I took away the best that I could from both cultures. Now, that's a big move. That's a big move. Obviously, completely different cultures, too. 
and you were eight, you know, at that point, you know, you, you really realize, you know, what, what's going on. So, you know, obviously new friends, new places, you know, lots of uncertainty. How do you think that that shaped who you are today? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I never really thought so much about this. I guess, you know, you're, you're kind of used to, you know, having to adjust to new environments, right? So you're kind of used to um, having to reflect on your own actions and how that also might be perceived by other people. Um, and so I think I've become a person that, um, while I might not project this, constantly question myself, uh, how I do things and how I can to improve myself. And I think that's also something that I've taken um, into the business and, and the way that I try to, you know, actually do business um, uh, with people from around the world. Yeah. Uh, I, I think in today's world where everything is changing extremely fast, um, people like to call it the VUCA world. It's probably one of the most essential skills that you can have to constantly adjust, constantly question yourself, being humble and being open to learning. Now, for you, how did you get this drive for entrepreneurship? I mean, was it something that you were born with? Was it something that, that you developed, you know, over the course of time? Did you have anyone in the family? You know, how did you get inspired, you know, for, you know, building and scaling stuff? I was born into a family of um, entrepreneurs, I would say. My father, um, he was a business owner. Um, he, you know, his father was a business owner. Uh, and as a consequence of this, you basically raised also with friends of the family that are business owners. So I, I really never knew anything different. Um, I always felt it was the right thing to do to build a business. I always wanted um, the freedom that comes with it, the intellectual challenge that also comes with it, um, to extend also the diverse scope of the work um, that you need to fulfill also as, a, as an entrepreneur. Um, I love the competition um, and you know, to be transparent, I also love the financial prospects of a fun, you know great business or what it can represent. And so, for me, it was always a natural path, but it wasn't the first thing I did, right? So, I've always been very um, numbers and science driven. Um, I'm a very rational person, um, and so after studying economics and then actually moving over to business administration, I actually didn't go entrepreneurship, but I started to work in investment banking at JP Morgan. Um, and the reason I did this um, was because my father had died and I had this need for safety, security. Um, and, you know, that was basically in 2007. And then I moved into investment banking. To be fair, in hindsight, it's probably the worst move you could have done in 2007 um, is to move uh, into investment banking to be in a safe industry. But uh, I think I was lucky. I joined JP Morgan. It was um, a very good investment bank with great learning and also a company that navigated super well through the financial crisis of 2007 and 2009. And after having that learning, uh, for me, it was the right time to build a business. And um, um, I did that basically starting 2009 um, and, and uh, built my first business called MyBrands at that time. And a quick question there, because I see and I come across a lot of founders that um, have either been on the investment side, private equity or venture capital or consulting or investment banking, you know, and uh, there's some pattern there, you know, on some of those that they come on and, and are pretty successful, you know, that have had those backgrounds. How do you think that the background in investment banking helped you, you know, later on as, as you were building and scaling companies? I guess in my case, there are probably two things. Um, the first thing probably is the fact that I've always thought very hard about macro trends and about what I like to call mega trends. 
because that's what you do uh, when you invest um, or allocate your capital, right? You have to think about trends, asset allocation, um, how businesses function, um, and market dynamics. And that is something that I've taken with me. Um, I'm a strong believer in investing my time in secular tailwinds and things that will work over a longer period of time. And that is something that I definitely learned also um, in investment banking. And there's a second aspect to it. Um, I was for a short period of time um, uh, in sales. Um, and in sales, you start thinking very hard about equity stories and how you sell and how you pitch. Um, and that is something that I always think very hard about, right? Because it's one thing is your execution and um, you know how you actually build a business, but you need to sell your business constantly, not only um, to people that you hire, but also to investors. And we need to raise funds. Uh, and that's probably something I learned also during uh, my tenure at JP Morgan and how to do that. And um, um, at least that has served me well um, during that time. So at what point did you feel that, um, because I mean, you were for quite a little bit, you know, there in JP Morgan and doing the, the different gigs that you did in investment banking, but at what point did it feel right? You know, the right time for, you know, taking a leap of faith and giving the notice and, and going at it? I mean, uh, it felt right. I mean, let's be fair. Yeah, at that time, investment banking was probably slightly different from what it is today. Um, it, it was a time where the work hours were crazy. Um, and we, I didn't really have a lot of time to reflect at that time. You know, I got up at 530 in the morning. At some point, I was working in trading and also doing some stuff for Asia um, and going home quite late. So I didn't have a lot of time to reflect. But at a certain point, you feel like, OK, this is probably not it um, and not what I want to do in the long term. And I had seen some of my friends building businesses successfully. Um, and this is something I always wanted to. And also probably came more from an inner feeling of um, security. Uh, I felt it was the right moment to take a leap of faith. Um, and, and then I decided to do it. Um, as I pointed out, my father had died a few years earlier. And, um, you know, that was to some extent digested. Uh, and then I was willing to run some risk and do it. But, and also, to be fair, when you are 26, 27, um, you have an education, you don't have huge debt. You know, building a business is not a big risk from my perspective. Uh, you don't have a lot of responsibility except for, you know, doing your best. Um, and that's what I tried to do at that time. So why my brands? You know, out of everything that, uh, that, that you could do, why my brands felt like the, you know, first business that you wanted to tackle? I wish I had a very sophisticated answer to that, that I'd done you know, tremendous market research. It was just a, an opportunity that fell into my lap. Um, I had spoken to my co-founder at that time who was uh, looking into that business. Uh, for me, it was a good entry point into that. Um, I liked the fashion space. Um, my, my family had been in fashion, in the fashion business before. Uh, but I must say, my family always told me, don't go into fashion. That's a business that is, uh, that is dying. At least that was a feeling um, at that time. Um, and, you know, for me, it was a step into entrepreneurship, a step into learning. And, um, um, and you know, I was invested into internet and e-commerce as a whole and not necessarily into the specifics of that particular model at that time. So, Salando, at what point does Salando come knocking? At what point does Salando come into the picture? Because, I mean, obviously, first company, first exit, you know, is is amazing. You know, the odds are always uh, against you, especially because you don't have that visibility, 
you know, as a first time founder, so that you perhaps have now as a third time founder where you've seen the full cycle of how a business, you know, starts, you know, raises, scales and then exits. So what kind of visibility did this give you on that full cycle and how did it happen with Salando? So an exit always sounds beautiful and shiny. Um, but in that case, I would say it was an exit and I wouldn't particularly celebrate that exit uh, hugely, right? So I think for us, it was a strategic um, uh, outcome that was possible at that time. Um, we saw a lot of competition popping up and we felt it was necessary to go that path, right? And we knew the founders of Talando, we started engaging with them and they also saw some value in us because they were also starting to engage into the off-price business uh, with Salando Lounge. And that was a natural fit. It wasn't a very long process. It was something that basically took a few weeks uh, to be completed and also drafted. Um, but it was an important step because we learned a lot in that process, um, um, not only because of you know the sale process itself, but also the uh, the um, the strategic aspects of that acquisition to Zalando. And also we were able to learn a lot with Zalando, which we then later on used in order to build our business in um, South America, right? Um, that was for us probably um, the point at which we, you know, we said, okay, this is an amazing business. It's better than what we were doing. And the reason we came to that conclusion were a few nuances, right? Which I think sometimes go unnoticed. Uh, it sounds it sounds crazy when I say, you know, a fashion outlet, an online fashion outlet is fundamentally different from uh, a fashion e-commerce. Uh, superficially speaking, you could say just the discounts, uh, but that wasn't it, right? Um, there are many, many more aspects to it that are um, different, in particular, the market dynamics with your supplier base, uh, how you source them, uh, how they, what kind of value they perceive in you. Uh, it also has huge implications on your cash conversion cycle and things like this. And, you know, this was the moment that I was able to see all of that, right? Um, and I guess that's also something that really um, allowed me to become a better founder um, over the course of time. Because um, the truth is, I haven't always just done well, right? Uh, we've also struggled. Uh, my brand was an exit. It was a successful exit, but it wasn't a huge exit. And to some extent, it was also the result of some strategic um, challenges that we had. Um, and, you know, that is something that also accompanied us across this, you know, many, many years afterwards. Um, and so, um, you know, I think we learned a lot from that. And uh, that is something that made us better founders. So the transaction happens and then you decide that it's time to pack the bags and go to Brazil. So walk us through what was the thought process there? It, a bit more sophisticated than my brands. Um, uh, as you know, I was, uh, I'm Brazilian um, and um, I always had this, those great memories from my childhood, not only the weather and the beach, but, you know, when you're small, you always remember the nice things. Um, and um, uh, after selling basically my brand to Zalando, um, uh, I felt it was time for a new adventure. Um, and in 2010, um, we basically decided to go there. And I'm not sure you remember, um, Alejandro, but Brazil was on the cover of The Economist at the end of 2009. Um, and the title basically said, Brazil takes off. Uh, Brazil was really hot. It had won the nomination to host the FIFA 
uh, World Cup in 2014, had won the nomination to host the Olympics in, um, in Rio in 2016. Those are just symbols of the success. The underlying drivers of this were that Brazil had become economically extremely strong. More than 60 million Brazilians had, had stepped out of poverty um, into an inspiring middle class. Um, and, you know, uh, Brazil was uh, on the top of the world, at least in terms of perception, right? Uh, and then I started to dive into some of the specifics of the fashion market, um, which uh, is actually one of the largest fashion uh, producing markets in the world. At the same time, nobody was selling fashion online. And I knew what the potential was also in the West and Europe. Um, and it kind of felt like a no brainer. Um, and at that time, um, uh, it felt like the odds were against us because a lot of people in Brazil said, you know, nobody does it. Why, sh why people want to touch the goods? People don't trust the internet, et cetera, et cetera. But it turned out all right, I guess. Uh, so the feature became uh, in the years 2011 and 2012. So basically the first two years um, of operations became one of the fastest growing e-commerce companies, um, not just in Latin America, but on, but on the entire planet. Um, and a huge success. So you guys ended up uh, taking the company public, but I guess for the people that are listening to get it, I mean, what were you guys doing at Davici, at Davici, and uh, also at Davici there? You know, like what was the? Um, how are you guys making money? Yeah, good question. So we started Davici in Brazil, um, and Davici is basically um, and still is, by the way, um, a fashion e-commerce company um, and marketplace. Uh, the value proposition is relatively simple. We offer an inspirational shopping experience, um, a vast and relevant portfolio, a high level of convenience and fair and accessible prices. Um, and that allowed us basically to grow from zero to a business that generated hundreds of millions of um, GMV in Brazil and later on in other countries. In 2012, we started to expand into um, other, other geographies in Latin America. We went to Argentina, Chile, Colombia, Mexico. Mexico was eventually sold off, um, but all the other businesses still continue. Um, and Defici is today um, one of the largest fashion e-commerce in Latin America. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email 
at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So what was the process of uh, taking the company public? I mean, prior to taking the company public, you guys raised quite a bit of money. How much did you raise prior to the acquisition? Ah, good question. Um, I would have to dig deep, but uh, it was several hundred million euros at that time. Um, and to be fair, we would have to look at the entire group since after founding the Fiji, I think it was about 2015, we decided to merge also with other fashion businesses across the globe. Um, in Southeast Asia, Australia, um, India, and also the Middle East. And so the funding was quite substantial at that time. Some of those businesses were later on sold off, uh, but we still went public in 2019 on, on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange with um, the businesses in Southeast Asia, Australia, uh, also Russia, which I forgot, apologies for that, uh, and um, the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and you know we went public as a, as a group, um, uh, we basically built um, um, uh, headquarters in, in London and in Luxembourg um, and um, um, decided basically that 2019 was the right year. I'm not sure you remember, but 2018-19 saw quite a few tech IPOs in particular also in the e-commerce space. Uh, some of those are quite successful. Um, and this is when we started to go out. Um, we had seen you know, the business improve substantially with uh, quite a few of our markets already being profitable, being cash flow positive, um, by the way, including also um, Dafici in, in, in Latin America. Um, and this was a strong indication that the group as a whole could become a viable business. Um, and this was the moment when we basically went out and successfully IPO the business in 2019. And what was the uh, reasoning you know, behind all these mergers that you guys did? And, and what did you learn about M&A, but more on the on the buy side or on the merger side? Well, as usual, you, you learn the hard way how mergers work, right? And that wasn't the first one. We actually had acquired uh, also two companies before in Brazil, Canoe and Trikai. Um, and um, you, PowerPoint basically uh, tells you one thing, reality tells you a different one. Uh, and it's always very hard. Um, in particular, from a cultural perspective to make the teams work together. Um, and realize the kind of business synergies that you um, that you want to um, realize to justify that kind of deal and the prices that you paid. Um, but uh, in the case of the global merger that we had between the different businesses, there was a stock transaction. Um, and I guess the hardest um, learning that we had there is that you know communicating across the globe is quite different, and, and leveraging synergies is also not that easy. Uh, but we did we did manage to do quite a few, right? Especially around purchasing. Uh, tech collaboration, uh, and also just best practice sharing um, and how you also evolve your value proposition acro uh, across certain geographies. You see what one country is testing and working out, you apply that learning into your geography. So there's a lot of st stuff you can do. Naturally, economies, economies of scale is, uh, are something that are very difficult to, to capture when you're operating across, across the globe. Um, but uh, that is something that we learned definitely um, during that time. So at the peak of the uh, market cap of the company was well over three billion. Uh, now after the pandemic, you know, after such a successful um, run, you know, with Afici, you decide that it's time to step down. What happened there, and then what? Uh, what what led you, you know, to Mondo? Well, I mean, uh, those years were extreme, extremely tense of the pandemic. I think uh, people look at e-commerce of this of this time and think. 
it was more smooth waters. Demand just shifted digitally, but uh, it was actually quite stressful. Um, we were a stable, profitable business before the pandemic hit. The first reaction at the pandemic wasn't that people were shifting demand 100% to digital. Uh, it was actually the opposite, especially on something um, as a discretionary good as fashion. Um, as a matter of fact, demand collapsed by about 70 to 80% as a reaction of the pandemic. Uh, that was the first thing that happened. And then um, all of a sudden, consumers started to shift behavior um, to the digital sphere. Uh, and then things start, started to uh, turn out quite nicely for us, right? So in 2000 and, um, 2020 and also 2021. But it was an extremely stressful time. Um, and after navigating that, um, you know, um, I mean, let's be honest, you know, we were thinking, oh, wow, if, if, if demand collapses by 80%, you know, how will we fund the business? How are we going to do that kind of stuff? We had huge working capital commitments. Um, and so... But after things turned out very nice for us, um, you know, it, it came to the moment we say, okay, we're profitable, we're generating cash. Uh, market cap is at its uh, uh, max at that time. It feels like the right moment to step down. Um, we had done this, and when I say we, it's also my, my current co-founder, Malta and I, we had done this for more than 10 years. Uh, we had accomplished our growth uh, plans. We had become a profitable business. Um, and after so many years, you feel like a new challenge. Um, and uh, also for family reasons, I wanted to move closer to Europe and, and, and do something else. Um, and so the, the decision that I took was not, okay, I want to do something that uh, uh, I believe is a bigger opportunity. It was like, I just want to do something else and also in a different scenery, in a different space. Um, and that's when I decided basically to step down at the beginning of 2021. Um, also with my co-founder Malta, um, and moved back to Germany. And the move to Germany was more really for family reasons um, than anything else. Um, and then uh, why Mondo, right? So um, we wanted to do something naturally that allows us to leverage um, our extensive experience in e-commerce, um, as well as tackle a meaningful problem. I talked about this before when I said, okay, um, my learning from investment banking is that invest your time in big trends, right? And, and that was something that we were looking into. Um, and so we very quickly, following many discussions with, you know, uh, companies, VCs, etc., we came to the conclusion there are very few markets that are as massive as the B2B payment markets. Um, and at the same time, um, it is a market that hasn't seen really significant innovation, uh, nor to speak uh, disruption for the last 20 to 30 years. Um, it's a market, not sure you're aware, it's a market that transacts about 125 trillion US dollars per year, um, and which has processes that it remained pretty stable for a long period of time. And, and the main reason um, it, is a process, it, it is a stable market is that B2B um, contrary to B2C, involves many, many stakeholders. It's much, much more complex. It, uh, every company is different in each market. Companies of different sizes have different processes, different compliance requirements. And so in order to be successful, you need to have very tailored solution for every company. Um, what is changing now is that business-to-business um, -business transactions is moving into the physical, to, to the digital sphere. 
right? So you see businesses adopting uh, more financial um, SaaS, uh, which provides an entry point for innovation from our perspective. Um, and we believe that that entry point for us is deferred payment. And the reason for that is that um, businesses, and that's been the case for the last 5,000 years, transact through net terms, right? So when you own a store, you don't buy your goods paying in advance. You buy, you buy that uh, in order to protect your cash and to optimize your working capital paying in 30 days, 60 days, sometimes even more. Um, and the problem with that is that this typically works super well when you have a long-standing relationship, uh, when you have a face-to-face -face encounter, uh, but in the digital sphere, it doesn't work. Uh, and what we saw is that um, there's a need for that, in particular within B2B e-commerce. And then the question is, okay, how big is B2B e-commerce? Uh, and it turns out it is actually four times the size of B2C, which um, I was quite surprised to find out because I was a merchant in the B2C space for more than 10 years. Um, it is a market that is um, 20 trillion in size compared to about 5 trillion um, in, in B2C. And it is a market that is extremely fragmented and hasn't also seen the kind of infrastructure uh, being developed uh, to the extent um, that uh, that has been the case in the B2C space. And so we decided basically to build, um, you could say, an embedded deferred payment solution uh, company. Um, it's uh, And the starting point was B2B BNPL, um, but we're going way beyond that with Mondo. Now, with uh, Mondo, you know, you guys have also raised some money. So how much have you raised? And then also, what did you look for in the investors that you brought in? Because obviously now, third company, you know, you've now raised in the past. So what were you really looking, you know, from them? Now, so we raised um, in, in 2021, we raised our series uh, seed round. Um, we raised at that point um, about 12 million euros. Um, from uh, FinTech Collective and, and Cherry Ventures, as well as a few uh, very uh, famous angel investors from Klarna, uh, Zalando, SumUp, and you know a few other guys. Um, and um, at that time, what was important for us is uh, to look for partners, right? And that has been true also throughout the Series A funding that happened last year around May. Uh, we raised uh, at that time... Um, a series A round uh, led by Valar um, of about um, now, including also the top up 52 million euros. I think this makes it the largest uh, series A in fintech in Germany of 2022. So in total, we've raised uh, more than 64 million euros of equity um, in uh, less than two years, right? So that was uh, in basically one and a half years. Uh, and on top of that, we raised also uh, some significant debt financing in order to to finance also um, our debt facility uh, and our SBV structure. What I always look for um, in um, in investors is actually a partner, right? Um, I've been doing this now for a long time, um, and I know that uh, being an entrepreneur isn't a straight line. It isn't easy, and um, everybody who's built a business knows that. You will struggle and uh, things might get difficult. And what I want is somebody that understands that, somebody that um, is going to have my back when things get tough. 
Um, and I knew basically the three funds for a very long time. Um, uh, I've known FinTech Collective for a few years. I had actually met them before the pandemic. I love the guys. Uh, besides being, you know, FinTech expert in something that I definitely could learn more about um, at that time, you know, are, you know, super fun uh, to be with. And I think, you know, given their background also in um, as entrepreneurs were something that we felt was the right fit. Same thing with Cherry Ventures. Cherry is uh, um, is a VC built by um, people that built businesses before. We've known them for a long time. Actually, we've been uh, uh, friends also for a long time. Um, it just felt right. And they've been super supportive all along. And uh, and the Valar guys, we have also known for a long time. Uh, we've met them actually in Brazil probably 10 years ago. Yeah? Uh, we went out for, uh, for dinner. Um, and so... Uh, that felt like a natural um, natural fit. And I think this is extremely important in, in the initial phase of a startup when you're still trying to figure some things out um, to f- look for, for somebody that has your back and that is your partner. Later on, of course, other things also become important. But at this stage, this was what we were looking for. Now, when it comes to raising money too, there's vision. Vision that needs to be shared and, and in a way that is compelling for, for these folks that are jumping in to share the journey with you. No? So. If you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, Philip, where the vision of Mondo is fully realized, what would that world look like? Well, I mean, to, to, to work backwards and speak from a customer perspective, and that means basically businesses, businesses would have a much easier t- uh, way of transacting um, and getting the kind of working capital support that they need, right? Um, I, I've been uh, in a business before that does working capital, needs a lot of working capital, and sometimes I always want to know why. Why do I need to provide that kind of prepayment? Uh, why is it so difficult to get those goods? Why do we need a credit insurance and that kind of stuff? Um, and and that is that is our vision. And uh, to turn this a bit more tangible, we want Mondo to become the deferred payment option along all those um, the the payment steps of. Uh, business-to-business transactions that starts with order management, what we're doing right now, which people call BNPL. Uh, It continues with um, accounting system, treasury systems, uh, procurement system, uh, systems, um, expense management systems. What we do can be embedded everywhere. It doesn't just have to be um, in order management. Uh, And this is what I tried to say, right? So every company has different needs and we need to find a way to plug in our services at the point that they can access it. And it's just not one solution. We need to become a Swiss Army knife. Uh, and that is ultimately us, our vision, right? To uh, become this Swiss Army knife that facilitates business-to-business transactions and makes just uh, allows businesses to focus on what really matters, which is you know um, to improve um, their value proposition, grow the business, and be financially sound. So now let's talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. You know, obviously now you've been at it for three times, you know, a founder, you know, two times, you know, already that uh, you were able to achieve a liquidity event, whether it was via an acquisition or via going public. So you've learned a lot, you know, over the past 10 years. So imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back to that moment where you were working at JP Morgan, you know, and you're able to put yourself right there you know, next to that younger Philip, and you're able to give that younger Philip one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Ooh, uh, quite a few things, I guess. 
Um, one thing is probably that's, that's the easiest thing you can do is just talk to as many people as you can and ideally with people that are smarter than you. Um, that's actually surprising a lot of things to learn. Um, and I think people sometimes assume uh, that others are not willing to share their pain and their learnings. And that's not the case, right? So if I probably had spoken to more people, I could have avoided certain mistakes that I made. Um, and rather ask too many times for help than um, thinking that this is a problem you need to solve alone. Um, that is something that I definitely learned. Uh, and the other one is probably a very technical recommendation. Uh, you know, I, I've gone through a pretty uh, rigid financial education at university and afterwards also at JP Morgan. Uh, and to some extent, um, I felt uh, after I started my business that I don't need to uh, potentially think of certain aspects, right? So, uh, and I can be a bit more concrete about this, right? So um, you really need to understand not just the output of your business, um, you know, meaning revenue, profit, et cetera, and cash flow, but you need to actually understand the underlying drivers of the business. Um, so not just the output, but the input KPIs. That's how we like to call it. It's also a lot of the business do it like this. Uh, this sound, sounds obvious, uh, and you would argue that most young companies um, do this, but as a matter of fact, my experience is that most people focus on the output, right? Not so much on the input. They don't focus on leading indicators that are indicative of what will happen in the future, um, such as, for instance, customer um, uh, net promoter score, right? Um, or how your portfolio is built. All the kind of details are really uh, giving you an indication of what needs to improve and what will what your results will be um, um, in, in, in the future, right? Um, I would argue that most founders don't think in detail about the balance sheet. Uh, it sounds kind of off at the beginning, uh, but if you think about this, you naturally think also about um, uh, business dynamics, cash conversion cycle, and other things. Um, and then the other thing is probably, uh, and this is also common learning, um, but I also had to learn the, right, the hard way, um, you know, do little steps, iterate and learn faster, uh, do more iterations. Um, and uh, that is something probably that I could have done better um, over the course of time. Um, and uh, but this comes naturally to now, nowadays. This is probably a more common term. When I started um, about uh, now uh, fourteen years ago, um, it wasn't that common, at least. Yeah. Amazing, Philip. So for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to say to to, to do so? Probably the best way is through LinkedIn. Um, happy to connect. Happy to share um, some of my learnings. Also, also happy to get new customers at Mondo. Right. So if you own a <laughs> a B2B e-commerce company or any kind of business that wants to transact with others in, in, in the digital sphere, reach out to us. Uh, open for business. Amazing. Well, hey, Philip, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.